صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Robert. How are you doing? Nasser, I'm doing very, very well. How about you? What's happening with you these days? Well, you know, we're living in a post-COVID world in Australia. We're very lucky, unlike most of the rest of the world. What, 30 days, no cases, etc. So living our best lives, Rob. But excitingly, we are joined by some Palo activist royalty from the United States. We've got Seher Nafan, who is a Palestinian-American activist, and Haytham Faraj from Faraj Law. He's an attorney and a board member of the American Arab Anti-Defamation Committee. Now, the two of them have taken the might of Zionism, has decided to take them on. And in a significant victory of free speech, they had a huge win in the United States this past couple of weeks. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. My pleasure. So, Herb, perhaps you can start off and just give us some context around the case, exactly what happened, your Facebook post. A couple of years ago, there was the March of Return um, protests in Gaza. I'm sure you, you followed those activities that were happening every Friday. And there was one Friday that the nurse uh, was assassinated on the field, Razan Najjar. She was volunteering as an EMT that day. And as we all know the story, she was, uh, in my opinion, deliberately sniped and killed by an IOF soldier. There's no way to argue it really, though, either, is there? Sorry, but there's not, not, not really a way to argue against that was the case. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's how I saw it. Yeah. And so like everybody else on social media, I had to share the story. And I have at the time, I think I had about, you know, 17, 18,000 followers. Uh, so my my posts sometimes get shared quite a bit. Uh, but this one in particular, what what I did is I posted a picture of an ex-IOF uh, soldier, an American gal who left the U.S. several years prior to that day that I posted. I didn't know at the time that she had already been, she'd already left the IOF. Also, I posted a picture next to her picture of Razan, and I just sort of did a comparison how, you know, this young lady from America is, went to Israel to join an army that she had no business joining. And, you know, here she's, she's contributing into, in the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And then you have a young lady, a Palestinian nurse who's who's saving the lives of her fellow Palestinian protesters and so it was sort of a comparison of you know good versus evil is, is what I said. That, that comparison too I'm looking at it now just as you were saying good good versus evil the comparison yeah. is incredible absolutely incredible isn't it when you've got uh, in a, uh, an American Israeli sniper sitting there ready to kill and then right. you've got the nurse there with a the big smile on her face not fearing for anything but helping other people right it is it, it is a completely unbelievable yeah and i and i it just came out of me i just i saw this picture of this young woman from the united states on my timeline that was shared by Miko Pellet of all people off of the facebook page of the idf right so they had shared a little snip about her how she's you know they're just sort of proud of her and how she came from the united states so and I kind of knew that that comparison and that messaging was going to be 
shared. I knew it was going to, it was going to hit a nerve with my followers. I didn't know. And I didn't anticipate that many of them decided to read it in their own way. And he changed my words, essentially saying that it was Rebecca who killed Razan, right? And so that went viral. I guess it was shared millions of times. It's the only post that's literally ever gone viral that I've that I've posted internationally. So I remember parts of it when newspapers took it up, actually stating it as a fact. They'd actually taken your picture and some of your words and said, this is actually the person. And then it, it went viral again because of that. So Right. Yeah. It wasn't just social media, you know, individual account holders that were sharing it. It was exactly, I guess, the media as well. And and so the rest is history. And, and I remember feeling nervous. I remember thinking to myself, this is going to come back and buy the butt. I, I kind of knew I saw it coming. So that was what a little over two and a half years prior to the day that I that I received the um, the lawsuit. I was here. I just moved down to two and a half years. Yeah, I, yeah. I just moved down. I left. I was in Chicago for about nine years, and I came back to California. And I just got settled uh, in in uh, Orange County, and you know, just enjoying my new life. And I'm walking my dog one day and I come home and this stranger just walks up to me and gives me this, this piece of paper. And, and the rest is history. Thankfully, I was, was told by several people to reach out to Haytham. And, and I think I got very lucky with an amazing attorney who really knew what he was doing and also a, a really good judge. And, and thankfully, it all worked out for the best. But Haytham, why don't we go to the, the case, the actual charge and what the Israelis and Zionist lobby, Sharat Din, what they were trying to actually do. Yeah, it was a, a, a very a smart, strategic move. They waited for the statute of limitations to run, which is the period of time allowed by law to bring a lawsuit. And usually, if you don't bring a lawsuit within that period of time, U.S. law, uh, British law, Australian law, it's all the same. Based on the common law, your, your claim is stale and it, you just can't bring it. But what they did in this case is they waited until it expired. And then they made the argument that because this alleged def defamatory act uh, involved an Israeli citizen and a, and a defendant being Soher, who did not live in California at the time, she lived in Illinois, California law ought not apply because California has no interest in it. The, 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 uh, the harm was in Israel or outside of California. The act was committed outside California. The plaintiff is outside California. And so uh, they asked the judge to apply Israeli def defamation law, which has a, a statute of limitations period of up to seven years. And what they were hoping to do is to have the California court say, yes, based on a state interest analysis or country interest analysis, California has no real interest in this claim. And so why not apply Israeli law? And let me tell you, when I read it, I was I was a bit queasy thinking that this is going to be a tough one, because usually a statute of limitations uh, defense is is a pretty uh, tight one. You know, you just you, you didn't file within a period and you're done here. They were relying on some case law from an appellate court, a federal court. I think they thought they could win. And by winning, they would establish precedent that would allow them to sue any Palestinian activist or activist for Palestine who is critical of any uh, Israeli soldier or act. And so that, that was the sort of the, the, how, the uh, how they framed the lawsuit to be able to achieve uh, an objective. You're saying that they, in a Machiavellian sense, waited for the expiration, saw that um, Sohead was no longer in Illinois, 
and that created the opportunity for this precedent to be set? Well, absolutely. There, had they had they filed suit using either Illinois law or California law, both of which establish a one-year maximum, uh, the lawsuit wouldn't have seen the light of day. It would have died uh, almost immediately because, in fact, under U.S. law, the act, the communication by Soher is not defam is not defamation. Just because someone misunderstood it. Mm does not make it defamation. So she, she, was, she was comparing and contrasting on a very public, uh, on an event of great public interest. Uh, she had many followers as they conceded. And so the law in both, and I'm licensed in both states, the law in both states is you, you can't hold someone for defamation when the, uh, when the act first is not uh, a lie, is not untrue. And second, even if it's not quite correct, if it's a matter of public interest concerning political events, you, you don't get to call it defamation. So one thing we talk about in the Palestine activist community is progressive except for Palestine. This win is a win for free speech in the United States, but mm. we've got a thing in the United States that we certainly do in Australia. We, we have free speech except for Palestine. Do you think we'll, Sahar and others will be safe from this sort of act? All these sorts of actions again? Well, you know, this doesn't stop people from from this doesn't stop uh, Zionist organizations and Zionist law firms like Sharat Hadin from suing activists. And, and I'll let uh, Sohair speak about the emotional trauma that this usually causes people. I mean, it's a scary thing to get sued for six million dollars for uh, an act that we think we take for granted. And that is just simple advocacy. However. Uh, just like uh, they tried to establish precedent with their lawsuit, we established precedent the other way, that advocating uh, in this type of way is not uh, defamation and uh, you don't get to apply Israeli law. So if people get sued, at least they'll have the ability to rely on some precedent from this court to say, uh, you know, the, the, this is not defamation. So can we just talk to the audacity of an Israeli lawfare organization endeavoring to apply another country's law in another country. Has that ever happened before anywhere else? <laughs> if you're asking me, I don't know. It hasn't happened in the United States before. It's a level of Machiavellian Orwellian omnipotence and self-importance and belief that only a Zionist could perpetuate or believe in. Now, Sahed, why don't you take us through that emotional journey? I wasn't 100% surprised and everyone I spoke to, thankfully, I have friends who are attorneys, right? Palestinian uh, advocate attorneys, uh, including Haytham. Everyone's like, Sahar, don't even worry. This is, this is just so unwinnable. It's, it's, it's a joke. It's going to be thrown out, you know. But still, again, I mean, as to what Haytham was just saying, who wants a $6 million, that number, $6 million, uh, $6 million lawsuit hanging over their head, right? And, and I thought it was going to go away. I, I was so confident that Haytham was going to ha you know, have the hearing with the judge and, and the judge would have it dismissed. And, and thankfully, also another win, by the way, that we didn't mention is, and I, can, I, I still don't know what SLAPP stands for, and Haytham can, can, um, can explain it. I, I guess it's, it's not very easy to win an anti-slap motion, correct? Uh, no, no, it's not. It's, uh, well, what we did is we, we defended the lawsuit, asked the judge to dismiss, uh, but, but it wasn't just a simple lawsuit because as soon as they filed, they began to file other documents, including a declaration by one of the most uh, notorious so-called experts 
an Israeli law, a guy by the name of uh, Boz Schnorr, who has testified in numerous cases where Israel has sued Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, under the guise of uh, organizations or countries that commit acts of terror. And what that allows them to do, when, once, a, once a country or an organization is listed, sovereignty is removed and now they can sue them for money. And Israelis have won hundreds of millions of dollars against uh, Iran and other countries. I think Sudan is one, uh, others, for, uh, so-called, for the so-called victims of Israeli victims. And so this guy goes around selling his services uh, to Israeli, so-called Israeli victims uh, for reparation payments. Uh, so he, they produced a declaration from him in support of the motion why Israeli law should be applied in this case. Uh, and so we, we began to work in earnest to defend that, but we also decided to... Uh, file our own motion to say this was this is against the California Constitution. And, and SLAP stands for a Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And, and essentially, it's a, it's a mechanism devised in California and some other states to punish parties that try to silence essentially speech or expression by use of a lawsuit. And it is a tough battle because the judge has to essentially say that the intent isn't to really avail yourself of a right, but it is to silence someone. And when the judge decides that that's the purpose, then it is mandated that the judge allow the winning party to, re, re, to get back its fees, its costs, and so on. Uh, and so that, that, was a win, that was a big win for us. And, and that may be the biggest deterrence for future lawsuits, because if uh, others try to silence uh, Palestinian activists, uh, they, they will have to pay the price for the lawyers and the cost to defend the lawsuit. So where the precedence was endeavoring to be set to sue a, an activist w into Israeli law, wherever they might be, in fact, what you've done is created a precedence that says, if you try and shut down free speech with your might and power and lies, and it's found to be oppressive, for want of a better word, you're going to have to pay up. So what are our expectations of recovery of costs, Haytham? Well, it's, it's a, we haven't put together our motion yet, but we will be uh, doing an accounting to account for every minute that I and my associates have had to spend on this case for the last six months. Uh, we'll submit the bill to the court. The court will uh, go through to make sure our work was reasonable. I think they'll find that everything was reasonable because they hired some, you know, they had many lawyers on their case. I only had myself and one of my associates and they had experts, we did not. And so I think the judge will find that our fees are very reasonable and enter a judgment against uh, the, the plaintiff, and I forget her first name, Rumishkaya, uh, that she goes by Rebecca. She's now an Israeli citizen, though, Haytham. I, I, I honestly don't know where she is. Uh, I, I think uh, by, by, by Israeli law, any, any Jewish person can, uh, can obtain Israeli citizenship. I, I'm not an expert on Israeli law, so I don't want to misstate things, but... I'm not sure if she's living there or if she's living here. I don't know. Well, fingers crossed you can chase her all the way through. So, Head, one of the challenges, you know, as a Palestinian activist, and I know I do, every post I make, I have a look at twice and say, is there a way that somebody could choose to create an ambiguity in here that makes me an anti-Semite? And so I'm, I couch my words and I'm careful. And, but it doesn't stop me doing what I'm doing, but I have a, a layer of second thoughting myself, second thinking myself. Has this changed you? 
you know, I, I, I had that issue and I have always had that issue. And unfortunately I've made statements and I've written things that have gotten me blocked, right. By Facebook, um, several times. And I've, I've since really started editing myself. So, you know, look, I'm a Palestinian. I'm sorry. There is no such thing as a, as a Palestinian that can be called anti-Semite. I mean, to me, that is just ridiculous. You know, you can't, you can't dub me as an anti-Semite being a Palestinian and going through what we've gone through as a people, you know, and, and, and the, and the human rights violations and, you know, the criminal behavior of, of my people for 73 years now. So I, I laugh at anybody who, who calls a Palestinian anti-Semitic. It's, it's a laughable thing to say to, to a Palestinian. So I'm not worried about it. Yes, I think, you know, the reality is when we're advocating for justice for the Palestinians and talking about Israeli crimes and the ongoing Nakba, the genocide, mm. the perpetuation of the ethnic right. cleansing, that's anti-Semitic. The challenge is we do have occasionally some Palestinians who go, it's all the Jews or the Jews control True. all the banks or the Jews control all the... And that, that's anti-Semitism. And, you know, we've got to be clear to call that yes. out. But to the actions of a state yes you know for Re- rebecca decide that she wants to she's found a lawyer and they've raised money and they want to apply another country's laws yeah. into another country yeah. and bankrupt you and sue you for six million dollars right. if we call that woman a bitch we're not anti-semitic we're just calling her out for the cruel rude human that she is right well let me let me go one further you know i, I i'm a retired marine corps officer uh u.s marine corps officer I, i'm 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 a I was born in Lebanon. I emigrated to the U.S. I adopted the U.S. as my country. I still have links in, in Lebanon. But, but it's offensive to me that an American would forego serving in her own armed forces and her own country's armed forces and goes to swear an oath to a foreign country. It doesn't matter what your religion is. You know, it doesn't matter what my religion is. You know, if you're Christian, you don't go swear allegiance to the army of the Vatican. Uh, if you're Muslim, you don't go swear, swear allegiance to the army of Saudi Arabia, not that it represents uh, all Muslims. Or, or if you're Hindu, you don't go to India and swear allegiance to, to the government of India. And so th- this notion that, you know, you get a free pass because you're going to serve in the Israeli forces, which have been used for the last uh, 75 plus years when, when they were the the Haganah and the Stern gangs, a, a bunch of a bunch of terrorists. You get to serve in that army and you get a free pass by the United States government to say that's okay. And that's offensive to me. It, it should be offensive to anyone. And just to be clear, Nasa, regarding you know the and the back to being anti-Semitic, I, to your point, yes, I am I am offended when Palestinians are anti-Jewish, right? And I think that's that is how it should be termed. I mean you know, some of the most vocal spokespersons for activists for Palestine who would, I always say, would take a bullet for us are Jews who are anti-Zionist and anti-occupation. And so they are, I respect them highly. We're, you know, they're, they're a part of this cause with us. And I do get offended when certain Palestinians or, or, or post or uh, pro-Palestinian people who, you know, activists or who post on Facebook and their posts sound a little bit anti-Jewish. It is. And I, I definitely get on their posts and correct them and, and tell them how I feel about it. So. So Ed, what's your activism taking today? What are you doing at the moment? Listen, I, <laughs> to be honest with you, I, and I want to make it clear, and I say this to people and people say, stop, you know, don't minimize yourself here. I don't, 
consider myself an, as what, what I would call an on-the-ground activist. I mean, I look at some of my friends who have done this for years, who are organizing and setting up meetings with universities and, and, and businesses trying to educate them on BDS. I mean, I don't do that often, if at all. I, You know, my life has kept my, my off-social media life has kept me plenty busy. This has and was just a way for me to express my anger to get on my social media account and just post. So this is a a part-time thing for me that I don't do full-time. I don't credit myself as being someone who runs or, you know, pro-Palestinian organizations. Yeah, I'm on the board of a couple of organizations that I spend time in meetings and whatnot, but I really don't do much actual organizing and mobilizing and writing <laughs> writing programs and, and you know I I am just on social media and I know that's you know again people say it's not just a social media activist but when I have time I get on my Facebook account and I share the news that I see coming down my timeline and thankfully the way I write the way I express my thoughts the things I share resonate with people and I do get a lot of followers who want to share my posts. And then the thing that really makes me happy and makes me feel like this is something that I can't not do for the rest of my life is when I get private messages from regular Americans who know nothing about the cause, who tell me because of your posts, I am now aware of what's happening in Israel. And I am now, and that, yeah, I've been getting that for years. All the time I get messages like that. And that to me is worth it for me. So, but yeah, I guess to answer your question (laughs) at the moment, I'm looking for work. I, I, like I said, I relocated a little less or a little over a year ago, but this is sort of my part-time thing. I'm only on social media a couple hours a day. I just look at, look for stories that I know need to be shared. And again, I am involved in some, some initiatives, absolutely. But I don't, I, I don't take, I can't take the credit for doing what my, my colleagues do and my friends do who are, you know, they're spending five, 10 hours a day actually doing activism work like Robert used to. I mean, he used to go to Palestine. And so anyway, I was going to say, you, um, you've had a lot going on too. There's only, you know, a certain amount of hours in the day and you had those other hours absolutely to, to do other things that you've had to do. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it is what it is. Right. Perhaps we've got a few minutes to go. You tell us your Nakba story. So were you a 48 or a 67, pre-48? You know, again, I am, my my family, so I'm, again, I don't want to keep minimizing myself. I come from a village out of, right outside of Ramallah, right? That's, I mean, technically it's occupied, but my father and his family comes from a all Christian village called Jifna. Uh, and then the next village over is well known, it's called Berzeit. And Berzeit is known for it's the university and it's a politically, very politically uh, strong and active village specifically for the university. So I can't personally share any Nekba stories from my family. I, I'm assuming I have family members that are, that go back generations that lived in 48 that experienced the Nekba, but my father, my grandfather did not experience any horrific. So here's a reality and you are minimizing your, your struggle. The reality is you can't go back and live freely in your grandfather's village. Now, that's a Nakba story. Absolutely, right? But yeah, no, absolutely. Look, Jifna is, I have land there. I just inherited, inherited. So absolutely, it kills me that I can't go back. I want to rebuild on that property that my, my siblings and I just inherited. 
I know I can't. And if I try, it's going to be an absolute nightmare. And I also worry about my property being occupied at some point. We don't know what, you know, they continue to get closer and closer to that part of the West Bank. So yeah, absolutely. Of course, we're all touched by this in one way or another. But I, you know, I do this for, for my fellow Palestinians who have, who have really, really suffered and their families. And again, obviously my family has suffered to a certain extent. Right. And I, and I have my aunt that lives in Jifna right now and they're not doing well. They're, they're struggling financially and because of the occupation and COVID and whatnot. So, but my fight and my passion is for my people more so than it is for my personal family and friends, if that makes sense. It's a fight for justice. And so, and my mother was an activist and a lot of my family members who come from Birzeit are activists. And so admittedly, I can't really sit here and tell you that one of my great grandfathers was assassinated or was was evicted from his home. And if if that happened, my my parents never told me about it. But I don't believe we have. And if we, I'm sure we had relatives. I just we just never heard about it. And so we're I'm the I'm one of the lucky Palestinians actually. I really am. I'm one of the lucky Palestinians who come from the West Bank from a sort of not a privileged but you know a, a normal. Um, situation. Not that there is anything normal being in living in Palestine. But anyway, I hope that makes sense. Kind of sense. I'm from Dev Dubuane. And if you want to talk privilege, you're not going to have any more privilege than, than my. <laughs> you get it. Oh, that's right. Samira says to say hello. Samira Sarwood was asking about you. Okay, go ahead. Okay. How did you end up then in the United States? Did your dad leave for education? or? Yeah, I mean, my parents, they got married. And based on the you know, they're not being much um, economic opportunity, but yeah, much opportunities. My dad uh, took a job in Kuwait, just same story that everybody had, right? He had my, they had my older brother and sister in Kuwait. They had a layover in, in uh, Jordan is that's when I came along. And then when I was a year old, they, he found work in Jeddah and Saudi Arabia. And that's where my younger brother was born. And then when I was about eight years old, they just decided it was it was best to relocate. There was opportunity in California in the Bay Area, San Francisco area. My mother's older sister at the time, it was you know fairly easy back then to sponsor a sibling. Uh, and so my mother's sister just basically sponsored her and us to move to the San Francisco area, which we did. And we became citizens fairly quickly and, and the rest is history. So the majority of my life was was spent in the San Francisco area. But yeah, that's basically the, the immigration story. That's a great story. You're right. One of the challenges I have contextualizing my experience is the privilege that's been afforded me growing up in the West. Whilst many of my cousins or most of my cousins all have Hawiyas because they, you know, do the summer in, in Palestine and the winter and spring and autumn or fall in the United States. That was never uh, something my father could do. So we grew up very, very white with an overwhelming sense of responsibility to those that haven't had the opportunity. Correct. Their suffering is my suffering. I mean, I can't can't separate the two. I can't watch any Palestinian, whether they're in Palestine or outside, as refugees in Lebanon or Syria. It's just, it's as though that is my family member. Like uh, he and he and she, he and I, or she and I share the same blood. And so the emotion I have attached to any Palestinian that's suffering is unbearable almost. It's, 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 un, you know, it's undescribable. You get it as I think only Palestinians and those who really love Palestinians understand that this, this emotional connection that's, that just makes you, makes you not want to do anything in life, but to fight and, and be their voice. 
So Heather, there is no better way to finish the show on that line. Thank you so very much. And Haytham, thank you so very much to you. You'd both to be congratulated for your work and efforts. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having us. Well done. Thank you for having us. Listeners, March 30 is Palestine Land Day, a day of commemoration and resistance. Free Palestine Melbourne has organised a rally this afternoon, Saturday the 27th of March at 2pm at the State Library. Join me, us, together to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people on this important day. On Palestinian Land Day, Palestinians around the world commemorate the killing of six unarmed marchers and the wounding of a hundred others who were protesting the Israeli government's confiscation of their land on the 30th of March 1976. Despite ongoing Israeli efforts to violently suppress such commemorations, the people of Palestine and their supporters around the world continue to commemorate 45 years of non-violent resistance. Indigenous Palestinians, 7 million exiled Palestinians, 5.2 million occupied Palestinians, all denied human rights, including the right to vote for the government that rules them, and the 2 million Palestinians with Israeli citizenship who get treated like third-class citizens are all being threatened with continued ethnic cleansing by their Zionist rulers. This ongoing Palestinian genocide continues. Remember what Nelson Mandela said, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. So join Free Palestine Melbourne and I this afternoon, 2pm, State Library. Hope to see you there. Remember, listeners, the podcast, tell your friends, and there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.